0: .NET Rocks episode 687 with guest Tatham Odie. Recorded live Monday, August 1st, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.NET, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net.
1: And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's .NET, it's an hour of techie goodness. Nothing but good. You just came back from Italy, my friend? I got back just yesterday, relative
0: to when we're recording this, but yes, two weeks in Italy and actually a vacation. So all I did was drink wine and eat cheese for and two weeks. Good wine's pretty cheap there, I hear. Well, uh, you know that's the thing. When in Italy, drink the local stuff. That, and I'm talking cheap, like four euros a bottle. Wow! Which, you know, meant I was sauced most of the time, but <laughs> I'm not complaining. We eat good food
1: and and bucket loads of history. Awesome. Hey, let's jump right into a better know framework before we get off on a tangent. Wouldn't be the first time. Wouldn't be the last. What do you got for me? So, uh, a while back, I was talking about, uh, in Better Know Framework, yeah. about the Microsoft N-tier sample app. On Oh, Code yes, Flex. I remember. Yeah. Well, it turns out that app sucks.
0: I've <laughs> heard this from a few folks now, actually.
1: Well, and I didn't know this, but, you know, I, I was just looking at the popularity of the download, and it's a very popular download I surmise because of what it promises, not what it delivers. Right. Because that's what gets people to download it. But we got a comment uh, from a one KS, who is an unregistered user. And this person says, I can't help but wonder if the project mentioned at the beginning of the show was a popular download only because it was being criticized by a couple of prominent people. And he has uh, a couple of links to blogs. And one of them is to Allende. Ah, yes. Who tore out a new one, metaphorically speaking, and I have created a link with Tiny URL to his part one of that, which goes. You can go on and read the rest of them. Tiny URL slash That's a y e n d e n t i e r. TinyURL.com dot com slash ayende You can read what he has to say about it. Honestly, um, you know. Uh, My bad, folks. Didn't want to steer you in the wrong place. It looked like it was a popular download, and it is. So get the real story. I hope I didn't waste your time. No problem. Yeah. So, Richard, who's talking to us?
0: Uh, interesting that you came at it from this angle of criticism because I grabbed a somewhat critical comment from show 676, which, if you recall, is the show we did with Scott Guthrie at the Norwegian Developers. Ah, yeah, that's right. Yes, and this is uh, the name. All I've got here is Steve for the name, but he said, I don't want to overreact, but Azure is really giving me the creeps. <laughs> First, Mark Racinovich and now Scott Guthrie have left us and gone Azure. And both fellows justify Azure with the same reasoning. Windows is really hard to set up and administrate. Better to pay a monthly fee and use a cloud that is intended to make running an app easy. As in, it is in Scott's and Mark's and Microsoft's best interest to keep Windows Server hard to use to encourage the customers to bring their business to Azure. Hmm. To make matters worse, Scott will be a manager in both Azure and Windows. So will he make decisions to kill improvements in Windows app development to make Windows apps easy to deploy and admin? I don't mind at all that Microsoft has other lines of business like Azure, and I eagerly await what the programming model will be on Windows 8, but why sabotage and poach people from the product space that I work in?
1: You know, I can see Scott Guthrie in a villain chair in a stainless steel room with a big cape going, (laughs) (laughs) who can I destroy
0: today? All right. And Steve, I am going to send you a mug because I read your comment, but I completely disagree with your premise for starters. Uh, I mean, Rosinovich is a tech fellow on the Windows side, and he went over to Azure because the development they're doing on a technology called, quote unquote, Red Dog, which is the core of the specialized Windows version that works uh for Azure, is really interesting work. And I have interviewed Mark on the subject, and you can see why he went. It's cool work that he's working on. Guthrie, as a VP, coming in on the dev side, is embracing, can we build greater development tools on the Azure space. And that's the interview we had with him, and I thought it was really interesting stuff. He's partly in Azure and partly still in DevDiv because he still has some ownership there, but I don't think the two are mutually incompatible either. Like, don't create conspiracies where they don't need to exist. I don't think, you know, the joke here is that... Windows Server has been super easy to use to the Mm. point where people who barely understand what they're doing can get stuff stood up and successful and then fall down later on when they find out they haven't set it up correctly for one degree or another. By far, Microsoft's claim to fame is that simplicity of installation. Azure's strength is not fixing that, because I don't think that's broken. Azure's strength is that building really scalable software is bloody hard, and their approach is better at building scale software. It doesn't make it easy. It's still not easy. I'm working on projects right now. Where we're finding out it's still hard. It's just easier mm.
1: and it's cheaper. I think, wonder, I wonder if Steve just like misses Scott. You know, he wants him back and this is how he expresses, you know, his, uh, whatever. It's entirely possible. It may We'll, we'll be. send him a mug and see what he says. Yeah, Steve, so you got to get in touch with us if you hear this, because we don't have your email, do we? No, we don't, but I will
0: leave a comment for him, and hopefully he'll respond. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas about a show, concerns about a show we've already done, just want to tell us we're out of our minds,
1: leave a comment on the blog site, dotnetrocks.com. And, uh, Richard, before I introduce Tatham, I just want to mention that uh, our friends in New York, Infusion, development, are still looking for great, Dot net rocks listeners to join their team. They uh they have offices in Dubai, in London, in Toronto, in New York, now I believe also in Poland. And uh they're always looking for really talented people and that's why they ask me to uh to let you know that they're looking for you. So if you're interested in a job change, you want to change a scenery and uh, you want to go with a company you can trust send me an email, carl at franklins.net. Maybe you'll join the ranks of lots of other .NET Rocks listeners who've joined the team. Well, Richard, I'm really, really excited because Tatham Odey is here. Tatham is a four-time Microsoft-awarded Most Valuable Professional and a regular presenter at conferences and events throughout Australia, New Zealand, and North America. As a principal consultant with Redify, he works with businesses to better utilize their technology investments and develop their teams. His tech focus lies around harnessing the heterogeneous environment of networks, devices, and software clients we like to call the web for both fun and profit. HTTP slash slash T-A-T-H dot A-M is his URL or at Tatham OD That's T-A-T-H-A-M-O-D-D-I-E. Welcome, Tatham.
2: Thanks, guys. Great to be here.
1: You've been uh, you've been riding the HTML Silverlight uh, wagon for a while here, and have some important things to say about it.
2: Yeah, I uh, <laughs> definitely more focused on the HTML side, but it was actually interesting. At our uh, Australian Remix event this year, I paired up with another guy who was sort of the reverse. He was the Silverlight focus, and we actually we did a presentation on how we can all play together and be friendly in the schoolyard. And that Ah. was really interesting, trying to come up with, uh, not trying to, but demonstrating useful ways that the two can coexist. Always a good debate to get people interested as
1: well. Yeah, it sure is. And being this early in the game, it's a good time to start thinking about it as well. So what were the takeaway points from that uh, presentation?
2: Uh, The biggest point that we wanted to drive home with people was the idea of using personas to evaluate any of your technical decisions. Uh, One of the things that I was getting quite annoyed with was that, you propose a technology and somebody goes, Oh, but that's not going to work in obscure browser X.
3: Mm.
2: Like, well, okay, but what percentage of users actually use that? So we've started to get through this, uh, getting people used to the idea of uh, assessing their markets and having different levels of support for different browsers. Mm-hmm. And Yahoo did a really good job around that with having their browser support matrix and talking about A, B, and C class support. Mm. But we wanted to take that further and then go, Okay, well, you actually need to break up. You market into further segments and the example that we built off was uh, sounds uh, soundcloud.com mm-hmm. and we built our own version of that which was sounds loud so if you capitalize <laughs> the s and l in the middle you get Silverlight. Um, so uh, and that was justin's nice little joke my co-presenter um, and that uh, that website what it does is it's designed for artists to go to go and share music right so you've yeah. got two major audiences you've got artists who want to upload and then you've got somebody who gets sent a link and they want to listen to a track on the bus.
3: Right. So you've
2: got that really easy example there of two different personas where one of them, they're going to want a richer experience of uploading and editing audio, mm-hmm. and you can probably ask them to go and install a plug-in or have a particular browser because they'll go to that effort to get their music out there. On the flip side, you've got the consumer as a different persona where you need absolute reach. and You need to target every single device possible and give them richness where you can. So then we started to look at ways of actually making those sorts of assessments, and then having technology which could give both reach and rich.
3: Hmm.
1: So you're one of the things that in in the uh, in the uh, little blurb about this is uh, check your prior preconceptions at the door; they may not apply here. What are some of the preconceptions that people have about Silverlight and HTML5 together? Well.
2: Uh, I'll I'll pick a preconception from each side of that, fence. One of the preconceptions with plugins is that if you go and use any plugin, be it Silverlight or Flash or anything else, uh, that means if a user doesn't have it, there's an install experience. So the first answer to that is use a plugin if it's there and if you can offer them a better experience, but don't go and force them to install it to be able to access it. Uh, So the demo that we had was that if they had um, uh, a plugin installed, so Silverlight, we would give them a nice upload experience where it would give them progress information as they uploaded and things like that. If they didn't have that, we didn't say you need to install a plugin to upload. We gave them a standard file upload field, so it still just worked. And then just had a little link off to the side that said, hey, if you want to go and use our premium uploader, you just need to go and install Silverlight. So we incentivized the install experience, but we didn't require it. And that's the first preconception with plugins is that you're always going to have an install if they don't have it. On the HTML side, the biggest preconception is that it doesn't work anywhere, um, which is just blatantly not true. And I guess the problem here is that uh, the speed at which it's developing, the adoption is actually picking up pretty quickly, mm-hmm. but all of the guidance that's been out there about the readiness is almost out of date as soon as it becomes available. I see. So the argument that we went with was, well, ultimately it's coming, so you might as well actually start building support for some of these things. And even if that currently only targets 10% of your devices, which the yeah. reality is it targets a lot more. As more and more of these devices update, then you'll get greater hit ratio. Uh, so then we went, and for our player experience, we had an HTML5 audio tag to give a native experience, and then within that tag, we then had a Silverlight player, and within that tag, we just had a download link. <laughs> so if you were on a, a capable device with HTML5, you got your native experience. It would work on your iOS mobile devices and things like that. If you didn't have the audio tag, would give you an embedded player in the page if you had Silverlight. If you didn't even have that, you just click the download link and you can still play it on the machine. Brilliant. So we're able to get that reach and richness experience in a progressive way. But over time, it's just going to get more and more native client support.
0: Could you have slipped Flash into that stack as well? Sure.
2: We could have. And this is one of the ways that HTML is really well designed is things like... When you put an audio tag there, if the browser doesn't understand it, it's just going to ignore the tag and it'll put the body content in as fallback. Um, then if you put an object tag in and it doesn't understand what that object is, it'll go to the fallback. So if we wanted, yeah, we could have actually had nested native Silverlight and Flash and then ultimately just the download link all the way on the inside. And you would have got almost, well, you get infinite reach because ultimately everyone's going to lead to the download link where possible on a vast of machines to have a rich experience
1: That is the most thoughtful solution to that problem I've ever heard. That's great. What a great architecture and
2: that was that was just stringing HTML together in a text editor. We didn't yeah. even write a single line of JavaScript to make that happen. Well but and the, I
1: think you don't even need to I mean just just understanding that that model that architecture is is uh, worth the price of admission.
0: But this is truly approaching this as HTML is the core language of this web app. Yeah. And the plugins are playing specific roles. I think it's a certain number of people that are building their whole app in Silverlight.
2: So this is where I think that, um, particularly back in the Flash days, we had all those wonderful uh, restaurant websites and empire websites in Flash. I think we have got away from that now and back to the idea of plugin islands. Um, where they're useful and where they can provide behavior. And the next part of evolution that uh, is a bit of a message that I'm trying to drive, and this is another point that we brought up in this convers- uh, in this presentation that we're referring to, is the idea that plugins can do two things. One is that build-up experience of where the browser doesn't have what you need and you want to go and have some sort of richer experience. Now, historically, that's the way we've always used plugins because browsers have been fairly primitive. Mm. But as the browsers get richer and richer, in a lot of cases... The native HTML5 experience will offer a better result. Even in the case of something as an au- simple as an audio player, we demonstrated that the native experience was better than what you were going to get as a Silverlight experience. Yeah. Um, so in that case there, we were using the plugin as a build down. So if the browser doesn't have the native support, go and use that as sort of the, the backup type uh, functionality.
0: And I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, I think about guys like Scott Stanfield, who built really rich media players in Silverlight that had ad inserts and things that their customers want first, and that the, the, the built-in video tag in HTML5 would be a fall-down position in that scenario.
2: That's definitely something we're particularly looking at, say, YouTube's adoption of the video tag. Um, There's a lot of restrictions there they can't yet support. So, for example, going into full-screen mode, they can't put the extra content on top of that, be that ads or just immersive commenting and things like that. The example we were showing was something as simple as I just want to be able to play an audio track. I'm not going to invest a huge amount of effort into it. So what I'm really realistically going to build as a Silverlight player is I'm just going to drop a media control on, have it stream, and hit a play button. Now, the native browser implementation is already a lot more than that. Things like in IE, if you click the time code on the left-hand side, it'll actually jump back 30 seconds, or if you click the link from the right-hand side, it'll jump forward 30 seconds. Hmm. You can right-click on the control and go save as to save a copy of that file. Like There's a lot of little intricacies now which a lot of people will skip over when they think, oh, it's just a player, but I can do that in Silverlight by just dropping a media element. And the reality right. is that if you wanted to get to the same level as the native browser implementation, you are actually still going to have to do a reasonable amount
1: of work right or use some kind of off the shelf tool like the silverlight media framework or something what we we right. talk a lot on the show about um and Richard brings this up a lot, Richard, you bring up the fact that the different browsers are going to have different levels of support and you know it's going to be a constant if this browser then do that or if that browser do this. what's the reality in terms of the the general compatibility with the with the primitive stuff in HTML5 is it pretty good now? Or is there, are is there like is the video tag a problem? Is the audio tag a problem? Are are certain tags just uh, more of a problem than others?
2: So the first part to this is that progressive enhancement is always the way that we want to be building. Uh, well, until we come up with the next grand plan, but progressive enhancement gives us the benefit of just being able to opt into these technologies when they become available. And HTML uh, in general, as well as HTML5 in particular, is very well designed around that. So like I was talking about, if the browser doesn't understand the audio tag, it's just going to render the child content. If it does understand the audio tag, it'll ignore the child content. So we can get that build-up experience where it's available.
1: And and progressive enhancement is this embedding that you're talking about, right?
2: Yeah, the idea of starting with your sort of uh, baseline and as the browser has these other features lighting up. Um, There's some intricacies between progressive enhancement and graceful degradation, but you don't want to confuse those terms. Uh, But progressive enhancement is the way that we want to move forward. If a feature's there, go and use it. If it's not, that's cool. We'll Mm. move on.
3: Yeah.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. We've been blown away by the uptake and the quick adoption of Silverlight. It's no secret, though, that the platform didn't provide for consistent integration with the web analytics services. Well, not anymore. As you might have already heard, Microsoft announced its Silverlight Analytics Framework, which solves the above-mentioned problem. But what's also interesting is that Telerik already provides support for the framework. Telerik's the first UI components vendor to offer handlers for the Silverlight Analytics Framework. Using RAD controls for Silverlight, you can immediately benefit from the advantages of the platform and start tracking the statistics of your applications. You can read details and download the handlers at Telerik.com Silverlight. And, hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik.
0: And not to take words out of your mouth here, Carl, but to paraphrase you, is an audio tag in HTML5 for iOS... IE9, and Google Chrome the same thing? That's basically what I want to know.
2: So the, the, simple, the, the answer to that is definitely no, for two reasons. One, you're providing a semantic bit of information that says, I want the user to be able to play a piece of audio here. Now, how each browser chooses to go and expose the UI for that and what other features they want to add is up to the browser, and that's a good thing because it allows us to have that innovation uh, of adding new features to these players and also gives the user a consistent experience across sites. The the best example of that would be um, when I go and get an audio tag on an iOS device, it's going to pop up into the iTunes player. I'm going to get the the different scrubbing experience. So as you go and drag the play point, if you also move your finger up and down on the screen, you get different levels of scrubbing granularity. And there's
1: no way we should ever expect them to be the same. Right. Is what you're saying. Um,
2: you don't want them to be we need yeah. to get away from this idea of websites being pixel perfect right. exactly the same across every browser. Right. The other part to it, which is a big downside though, particularly applies to the media elements in that we're currently screwed on the format angle. Um, the spec doesn't define what format browser needs to support. So if you want to go and supply video, you need to supply H two six four to IE, WebM to Chrome and Bog theora to Firefox. And you so you have to triple encode all your content. And huh. a similar story on the audio front. Like, last time I checked, Firefox can't actually play an MP3 file. Huh. You need an odd format. That's um, crazy. So that's pretty frustrating.
1: It's crazy that a browser can't play an MP3 file. How standard can you get?
2: Right. Uh, and the argument here is around licensing. I know, yeah. Uh, the flip side to that is, if you just go to the OS, you make it the OS's problem, but then you've got all these cross-platform issues and everything. Now, there's. Uh, I'm... As yet uncertain myself whether there are real issues there or whether it's just a bit of a pissing contest over formats. Um, mm. I don't see enough evidence either way myself, but I haven't done the full research into it. As a developer, though, it is kind of frustrating, but it does, it's not frustrating enough to stop me from using these technologies.
0: Right. I okay. just wonder if we're getting into this Gordinian knot of, if you're this version of Chrome, then switch to Silverlight. If you're this version of Chrome, go ahead and use that audio player. If you're this IE, use the audio player. If you're that version of IE, use Silverlight player. And, and you know, so eventually the list of code just to play that stupid music in the background is huge.
2: So on the format angle, though, this is actually pretty well handled. Um, the spec could see it coming in the sense of you don't have to go and browse the detects. You supply just multiple sources on the video or the audio tag, and you just specify what format they're in. And the browser will go through and pick the best one it can. Ultimately, that also will... Uh, it's not really there yet and that we just have formats, but you could, it, that would be very easy to extend and then have different bit rates and things like that. So a mobile device can just go and pick the best bit rate and the, uh, appropriate for its connection without you having to go and write all that code in your page. So the multi-format support in the spec is actually a good thing. It'd be nice if we got a bit more industry direction on choosing the one. Uh, in terms of the markup, that was the one ugly part to our demo if we had this audio tag and then a silver light tag and then some static stuff. Right. The flip side to that is you can do, uh, a progressive enhancement approach with JavaScript of, in your markup, just put the download tag, just literally a href equals some mp3 file. Maybe apply a class to it that says, right, this, this is an audio, uh, link, and then you can have a bit of JavaScript that comes along and will just uniformly push all the other markup in around it. Um, that then becomes a JavaScript-dependent solution but allows you to centralize that into one library and keep your markup over the wire pretty clean, uh, but then still get the browser support. And there are libraries out there that do that sort of thing. So there's a, um, I think it's called player.js, but hmm. you just sort of put in a link and bam, you magically get a player, uh, and it will work however it has to.
0: And the problem is that In the end, you're still falling back to the oldest browser you're willing to support, which I guess is, what, IE7 and Firefox 3?
2: But something, well, that's totally dependent upon your traffic. Something like going on with this audio example, though, if you have a download link there, that will play anywhere. That will play in IE1 without JavaScript or Flash or Silverlight or HTML5 or anything, Hmm. right? That is absolutely infinite reach.
0: So, I mean, the thing that the developer can do here is make this cutoff of I'm going to go with the download link for anything below IE9 and everything else above that is HTML5 or Silverlight.
2: Right. And then you get into the space of incentivizing users to actually go and install a plugin or something like that. They can still access the content. But, hey, if you went and installed Silverlight or if you upgraded your browser, you'll get a nicer experience here. And they actually have a benefit for doing that rather than that sort of complete blocker that just says, well, sorry, can't go here unless you jump through these 16 hurdles Mm. Not that
0: I minded when they were simply blocking IE6. Yeah. You know, when you showed up on a web page at IE6 and and they said, stop doing this, go get a real browser, I was okay with that. (laughs) Because friends don't let friends run IE6.
2: I like the idea of going and pushing people to upgrade, but as a developer, it's my job to handle the other issues. Um, I can encourage my users, but I shouldn't be blocking them from doing anything just because of my own opinions.
0: yeah, but there I do think it's reasonable <laughs> for the business to make a line. you know they, I understand that the justification for that move was it cost a lot to support i e six right and you, you were willing to sacrifice that small number of customers that may not be willing to upgrade because of the cost it took to support i e six.
2: Uh, so, my experiences on that, there was uh, about well, it was two years ago now, we rebuilt the entire front end website for uh, the largest e commerce company in Australia. Uh, literally, we went to file a new project from scratch. So, obviously, browser support there was a significant issue for sure. us. Um, looking at the numbers, IE6 did actually get down to a fairly small number by the time we were just after launch and things like that. But that was still hovering around sort of 4 to 5%. Now, that sounds like a small number saying, oh, well, I've met the 95% case. That's still potentially one in 20 customers. If you flip that around into the ratio uh, format, it it is still quite a scary number. You wouldn't turn away one of 20 customers. Yeah. That was the first thing I kind of realized is percentages sound smaller than ratios. The other part to that then was that uh, we were able to get away from the idea that it had to be pixel-perfect accurate in every browser. We were able to convince the client that that was okay. So things like our flyout menus on IE8 and up, it'd have nice little drop shadows and it didn't even require JavaScript. It was pure CSS hover effects and all sorts of stuff. In IE6, you needed JavaScript for that to work and you didn't get the drop shadows, right? But we were able to get a basic experience. So stuff wasn't quite as nice and it's a little bit clunky, but ultimately it worked. And once we got that in place for our sort of main layouts and master pages and our general suite of controls we were using through this e-commerce site, we didn't actually even end up doing that much testing and very little fixes for IE6. It was the type of thing where if somebody reported a bug or we happened to notice it, yeah, we'd jump in and fix it, but we didn't find it took us that long because we'd already done sort of that up front as the initial chunk of work. So in that sense, we're able to maintain support for quite a long period. with actually a very low cost of doing so.
0: Well, and, and I think you made an interesting discernment here, which is the difference between the customer and the user, mm. because the customer is a relatively tech-savvy web development-type guy who really cares about the appearance on every browser. But my experience is the user just happy if the thing works, that the niceties of drop shadows and stuff is sweet, but I'm more concerned that I can just get through this.
2: And if they're living in ie IA6- 6 they would never even know that our
1: site had drop shadows. Right. Right. But it would work, and that's your point. Make it work. Yeah. Tatum, if I could yeah. shift gears here for a second. Um, how do open standards of data delivery like OData and RSS and just basic REST-based uh data access? How has that really changed the landscape of um of web apps and, and in particular HTML5 apps?
2: Uh My experience is the general types of projects I'm working on, a commercial sense larger projects, uh, as just a mucking around developer, things like OData and RSS, yep, awesome, I can go and just make up little sites pretty easily. But in the larger sort of project space, I find that it doesn't really matter what the technology is, um, there's no real consistency there. If you're integrating with some other partner or something like that to make things work, then... It doesn't matter if they gave it to you in some sort of binary XML feed. Everyone's going to be slightly different. You'll just have to work with it. The real advantage I see of things like OData is more internally in the organization, between systems, those sorts of separations. Um, As far as things like, say, the NuGet API being on OData, that's nice. But if it wasn't on OData, it's not really going to make my NuGet client, Mm. custom client development multitudes easier, right? right? It would still be something where it's just an API, I'm just going to have to deal with that. Um, I like it in principle, but it's not like it has revolutionized the world, and I don't think there will be any one particular format that suddenly will. It's just something we can continue to strive for.
1: So, it seems like more and more data sources are popping up on the web and becoming available to our phones and to our portable devices. You know, now we've got a whole new slew of Devices knocking on the door with Windows 8 around the corner. You've got your Kindles. You've got your iPhones and your iPads. And and data is everywhere, data, data, data. How does that that change our approach to uh, developing our infrastructure?
2: There's a couple of interesting things I've been watching happen in this area for a couple of years. Um, And the Kindle is probably the best example of it, where you buy a device, you turn it on and it just magically has internet in 140 countries. You right. don't think how. And the cost of delivering that in that case can be easily added into the book uh, that you go and purchase. Uh, something else which I saw was you go, uh, two or three years ago, you'd buy a Dell laptop and you actually get a 3G service that comes with it. It's not activated, but you mm. can just go and activate that with the provider and then suddenly you get it. The space that I ultimately end up with getting to is that you'll just get a device turn it on, and you won't know or understand how that's actually getting any form of connectivity. It's just going to work. Yeah. Even to the point that in your laptop will do that, where it'll just be your expe- uh, expected life of the laptop three years. Three years of internet will just be amortized into the cost of the original device. Yeah, the Two interesting changes to that. One is just, um, obviously, you can see the business models are going to have to change um, in terms of getting uh, recovering that cost from the supply of the service, but that's not a fundamental change for... Service providers. So, for example, Netflix is of the world, they have a data cost and then they charge that back on to getting the movie. That data cost could go up. But the other interesting uh, way that I see that changing is that we'll see less and less uh, direct device connectivity. And we can see that starting to come through with things like iCloud, where my phone doesn't talk to my laptop at all anymore. Um, If I want to get any piece of data between the two of them, it's doing a complete lap of the world via. My exchange server, Dropbox, iCloud, or any of those other sorts of mechanisms to go and link them up, um, and how we think about doing more efficient uh, synchronization and things like that, I think will uh, have an effect on more of our mobile apps and that sort of sharing over time.
0: Yeah, aren't you really talking about sort of the failure of being able to get the software to work on both those devices? That it's easier to use a central point of contact for all of those things.
2: I don't necessarily see that as a failure and so much as uh, it's the most distributed architecture, uh, probably, in that it's just a, a network. Now, ultimately, things like IPv6, yeah, maybe my phone can find my laptop, but um, I, I think the devices should act independently, and we're starting to see this more service-oriented type approach where I just log in with an identity and all of my content just appears for that app, and the local device just becomes sort of a, a fast cache to access that. As a tech-savvy user, I treat all my devices as disposable. You can literally take my laptop and my phone and everything, throw it in Ocean, I'll buy new ones, log in, and all my data reappears. Uh, If it's not in Dropbox or Exchange, it doesn't exist. Um, Being able to push the general sort of consumer base down this path as well, and us as developers being able to support them through that of having these more server-based data stores but still efficient client access, I think will get us into a net better position for the wider community where we stop caring about things like backups and users. It's just, well, of course the data is always there. And in the same way that we've got this whole new generation of people who don't understand why the save button looks like a floppy disk, I don't think we'll have to solve that problem because we'll just stop having the save button, and they won't have this concept of how data could ever go missing.
1: Sometimes I think the only reason that uh, that um, you know phone numbers and contacts and text messages are stored on your phone is that it gives you a reason to use iTunes. You know what I mean? <laughs> Your iPhone, in other words, your your contacts, you have to back them up. Like all your content has to be backed up. Whereas well, what you're saying change. is what you're saying is it should just automatically happen.
2: Right. And seeing that across all of our services, no matter how big or how small. So the first one is people are now used to email and contacts. Well, getting used to the idea of email and contacts just existing in that space. Right. Um as we start to look at things like um I have a little GPS logger app. which I use on my phone, so I can go and record a GPS track, right? Now, that's something where the developer just went and built that. It uses local storage only, so I still have to back up my whole phone to store that content. Ultimately, we want to get to a position where that GPS app is pushing that back to some online service, but then you've got those app developers suddenly have to start worrying about an online service, right? So what will be an interesting space in how we start to deal with these things, um, iCloud is exposing APIs that app developers can just store content and they manage the online service. You've got alternative approaches of things like the original idea of how Live ID should have worked, it being just a unified ID to at least take that concern away. Um, I'm wondering if there's perhaps sort of another model of uh, where we have things like uh, you've got Delicious and Pinboard generic bookmark services and then the app developers, are independent app developers, on top of that, you kind of have somebody who takes responsibility for the service and the scalability and so on, and then somebody who takes responsibility for building cool clients. It's an interesting space seeing how all that's evolving.
1: At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4, or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety-five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net.
0: You know, this is sort of backing into the cloud discussion as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are you on this? Obviously, as a web developer, are you looking at Azure? Does it, does it make sense for you as the way to do web apps? Uh,
2: the project I'm currently on, we are using Azure. So we've got production deployments running up in Azure. Then okay. that was a decision uh, which it made the most sense for the client, which was why we went and made that. I have a number of other projects, including uh, customer projects, which run up on sites like App Harbor, and I've got some play ones on Heroku. Um, I don't think it's as simple yet of just what is the best platform for .NET, if somebody was going out and saying app Hub is the best one for .net you should always use that or azure is the best one you should always use that and then have the blinkers on and be doing a bit of a disservice to their customers but ultimately whatever the suite of services there are there is what we're going to end up moving towards um, i have my own infrastructure from back in the days when i had my own businesses so i'm lucky enough that i have Five physical servers sitting in a data center that I can go and spin every little experiment I want up on and things like that. Mm. But even that's getting frustrating and there's just no more cool factor to administering servers. We just want to not deal with that kind of stuff.
0: And we, I, I have it on my radar to do a show on App Harbor, but for those who haven't heard about yeah. it, maybe you should give us the, the 30 second recap. What is App Harbor?
2: Um, all right. If you're. Familiar with Heroku and the Ruby world, it's Heroku for .NET. If you're not familiar with those, it's the idea of using a distributed version control system such as Git or Mercurial. And then when you want to deploy, all you do is push that copy, a copy of your source code or a branch to the App Harbor servers. They will take that code, compile it, run the test, and then deploy it for you uh, in, out onto multiple web nodes and so on. So you don't even have to worry about building a deployment package. You just push your source code to them, and they take that responsibility. So then cloud hosting for that.
0: Which yeah. sounds like something Azure ought to do anyway.
2: Yeah. Um, Azure is still very much, well, is, and will be for the foreseeable future, built on the idea of VMs. So therefore, your minimum app size is one entire virtual machine. App Harbor and Heroku have worked with higher densities. So... You can take these little microservices, which might only get a hit every I don't know, hour or something. So, for example, my personal um, CalDAV feed, that only gets hit every hour or so, but I want that hosted somewhere else. Now, I'm not going to have a dedicated VM for it, whereas through either AppHub or Heroku, it's effectively shared hosting, where they'll go and just give me a small slice off the side of one VM, uh, which comes with its benefits, and you can do scale down, but it comes with the negative sides as well, and that you don't own that server and you're in a shared hosting
0: environment. Azure is more than just VMs, right? The whole web role, app role, those are not VMs per se. Those are shared instances as well. They're just, you're using VM in a more metaphorical sense, I presume.
2: Uh, no, no so your web role is, well, yeah, so you, um, the smallest thing you can deploy in Azure, you have a dedicated VM in order to do that, right? Like if you're running up a web role and a worker role, you have a dedicated VM for your web role and a dedicated VM for your worker role. Uh, so that limits the the amount that you can scale your application down and therefore also in, uh, gives you a minimum cost. They can't give you an entire chunk of RAM and CPU and everything dedicated to you for free, which App Harbor and Heroku can because it's such a smaller amount. So Azure in that sense is much more designed for a scale-up scenario. The other part to Azure, though, is they have the the rest of the APIs around it in terms of things like blob storage, table storage, SQL, Azure, queues, all these other pieces of infrastructure, which App Harbor, for example, don't have because they're really just a raw hosting provider. Right. One of the realizations that I'm coming to is that, um, which it sounds really simple in retrospect, uh, but you don't need to go and run your app on Azure to use these other parts of it. You can access blob storage from anywhere. You can access queues from anywhere, right? They're just APIs. You really actually need to divide that up a bit and that there's the entire Azure suite of tools, and part of that is the compute platform. Um, I personally have found areas of the compute platform somewhat frustrating to work with, but that doesn't mean that I should be excluding all of the other parts of the platform. Um, and whilst there are issues of things like cross-data center latency to take into account here, Another thing that we'll be looking at is the idea of these kind of hybrid clouds of saying, I want to run my compute capacity over there, but my long-term um, or my heavy data crunching to generate my reports, I could go and run that over on uh, EC2 because I can use the EC2 spot instances, which are a lot, lot cheaper than any other provider out there.
0: Yeah, if we're actually talking about cost efficiency, it's this tendency to light things up when you need them, do a chunk of execution, and spin them back down again.
2: Right, and the, well, the other advantage of spot instances is you actually set the price that you're willing to pay. And right. then once, uh, as more and more, well, as other people spin their servers down on Amazon, which then means they've got more capacity waiting there, the spot price goes down, kind of like a share price, and once it hits your minimum price, you go, right, yep, spin it up. So you don't get 24-7 coverage, but if you're just that back-end data processing task to generate some big report, you don't really care. It just needs to happen eventually, but you don't want to pay a lot for it. But then you might want to have your actual front-end website running on Azure so it can be close to your worker roles and your queues and things
0: like that. Well, and, you know, here's the conflict of interest. There's lots of discussion about this unified cloud approach, this, you know, set of rules so that you could run on any cloud, but the vendors don't want that. You know, Microsoft wants you locked to Azure. Amazon wants you locked to EC2 so that you don't do that. you They ultimately aren't incented to create this competitive model.
1: Funny how that happens, isn't it?
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't want them to do that either. I don't like the idea of a unified cloud where I can pick up from one cloud and deploy to another and things like that. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me in the same sense of, building a native application in uh, WPS, I don't expect to be able to pick that up and just run that on a Mac. Right? It's not going to be the right UI experience. It's not going to ha- integrate with the doc. And if I did it in vice versa, I'm not going to have jump lists and stuff like that. The reality is the different platforms I need to treat them in different ways. Now, if I'm like, mono is great. Sure, I can take my .NET skills and use that to write for the Mac. And I think that's wonderful, but I don't seek the idea of just having this unified obviously other than HTML and CSS and the web, but that's a whole other chat. Trying to just uniformly run code between the two platforms. Now I see going and trying to say, okay, I can take my E C two app and just spin it up on a viewer is that same idea of expecting to take an X V on Windows and double click it on Linux and it just runs. Um, we've tried that before and it was called Java.
0: Yeah, it didn't go that well. Oh, <laughs> Well, it's it's and it's just the truth that the right once run many ends up being a lowest common denominator, and it's not good on anything.
1: It's not good, and this is this is sort of the the blowback that I had when people were talking about unifying WPF and Silverlight too, just because they use XAML.
2: We see there's this huge debate at the moment of everybody talking about whether HTML5 is rich enough, but whether it can run enough places and all this stuff. And HTML5, we're talking about stuff like inputs that can take a date picker or apply email validation and playing an audio and tag and maybe rendering a little bit of graphics on a canvas or an SVG tag. Mm. Do people really think that if we're still working that debate out, as big as it is, that we can then go and start moving bytecode of, like running Ruby code up on Windows just by dragging it from Heroku to Azure? Like, do they seriously think this is possible?
0: You know, you can make it work in a demo, but that's all. Yeah.
2: yeah, I've done those demos before of, oh, look, I dropped some PHP code on my IS box, and it just runs. It, <laughs> is not, um,
1: it was Hello World and Brain Dead,
0: but yeah, it The runs. check is in <laughs> the mail. It's one of the big lies. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Depends yeah. conference it is and who's paying me to be there. No, <laughs> not that much.
1: Like. So what's next for you, Tathan? Where are you off to go speak next?
2: Uh I'm actually having. A, I've had a little bit of a hiatus so far this year. I finished up with Mix earlier in the year, and uh, I'm not a, actually even doing TechEd this year. It's I was going to say first no? year in seven that I'm not speaking at TechEd.
3: Wow!
0: Are you coming up for Build?
2: Uh, oh, not currently on the plans. Um, doing a little bit of review of what I do over the rest of the year, and I've got some more business-oriented focus I'm going to go and explore.
0: Nice. Well, I mean, apparently Build's sold out now too. So
1: yeah, and, and it's popping up in more countries too, isn't it?
2: The, uh, sort of like the Remix on the Road type ideas, I think. Yeah, very cool.
1: Well, is there, is there anything uh, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap? Anything you want to just throw out there, some resources or something?
2: Um, there are, what are we? There are two things I would love to plug. Um, one of them is cssquiz.com, uh, which is just a weekly CSS quiz that I'm starting up. So as we get more and more .NET devs getting into hardcore web work, Um, getting back to some of just the first principles of CSS. Uh, And the other one that people might find interesting in relation to the cloud discussion, um, something that we've just built out of this project that we're currently on, is a thing called Snowmaker. Um, All it does is just generate unique IDs, but it does so in a cloud environment where we didn't want to use GUIDs. We wanted stuff that looked like integers and longs. We wanted them to be mostly sequential, but we needed to be able to generate them really efficiently across servers that weren't necessarily talking to each other. Uh, so that's just a NuGet package called Snowmaker, also described on my blog.
1: Awesome. And that's T-A-T-H dot A-M, right?
2: That's correct. Awesome. All I had to do to get that to my name was prove that I was Armenian. <laughs> <Which
1: I'm> not. <laughs> Details. Well, Tatan, thanks very much. It's been enlightening.
2: Wonderful. Thanks for having me, guys.
1: All right. Cheers. And we'll see you next time, folks, on .dotnet Rocks.